We, his all-sufficient, authoritative Word speaks to us. God Himself speaks to us through His Word. And we are, as a church, uh, in Ephesians. This is the last message in our series in this letter. And so we're going to take time this morning to look at it. Uh, we're, we have arrived at the last five verses. I'm actually not going to speak on those five verses, though I could. Uh, you could probably have five different messages on the five verses. God's Word is, is such. Um, these last verses, really, uh, you see Paul instructing uh, the, the people in Ephesus about receiving the letter and the, the delivered uh, Tychicus is bringing this letter. and He brings a blessing that is rich in the themes of Ephesians. So he's concluding the letter and we are concluding our series. Uh, and we probably, in some ways, if, if we can think back to the past 14 months, it's been about 14 months, I believe, uh, that we've been in this series, uh, it, we probably are feeling a little bit how the original recipients of this letter would have felt upon hearing it read to them. It would have been read in one setting, and I trust we'll have time at the end actually to read through it, uh, the entire letter, like we did at the start of this series. But in listening to it, they probably were a little overwhelmed uh, because of all that it's talked about. I mean, it's had has so much in it. We've, we've gone 14 months. It's been, I don't know, 40, 50 messages on Ephesians. Uh, and, and we haven't belabored Ephesians, I trust. We've, uh, we've at times gone over things quickly that we could have slowed down and, and addressed more in depth. So uh, we've had 40 or 50 messages. This is a lot here. And we probably are, as we conclude, even feeling a little bit like they might have felt when they heard it. Just like, wow, there's so much stuff. How can I possibly do anything with this? And, and the expectation isn't that we would do everything with the content of this letter, but that we would do something. We would believe something. We would be changed in some way. And so my goal in this final message is to give an overview. And it's kind of like an overview that you might give upon return from a trip. Imagine that you've been somewhere else and you're coming back and, and you're reviewing that trip with your family members. You're showing them the pictures and you're talking about the highlights. And in doing that, uh, you're not looking to cover every single detail. You're, living, you're looking to leave an impression, really even for yourself. You're reviewing what your trip was like. We, we got to be in Ireland back in uh, March for 12 days that were jam-packed with touring this incredibly beautiful place and full of gracious people. And we had a wonderful time. And there were highlights of the time. We're certainly getting to see our daughter who was away uh, for school was part of that. But visiting people, relatives, and a sister church, and there's, there were things that went on, and, and for us, that, that trip had an impact on our lives. I don't believe we're the same uh, as a result. I think it, it did us much good in many ways. Um, but in reviewing it, we would show pictures and just talk about some of those things. And that's kind of what we do, right? When we come back from trips and we tell everybody, well, that's what we want to do today. We've been on a journey through Ephesians, and there's been a lot of things we've experienced as we've gone through. Let's take time today just to review some of the highlights and with that, the goal here is just to, just to think about how has this impacted our lives? How are we different today than we were 15 months ago? What has God done uh, in all the different things we've learned about and experienced? What has He done? And I hope to go from this place today uh, with each of us just having perhaps one thing. We could say, you know what? I think differently about this now. Or I act differently now as a result of that truth. So that's what I'm trusting God for. Let's pray and ask Him to do that, and then we'll continue. Lord, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for this wonderful letter uh, full of truth and the, 
the amount of truth and power behind the truth here that you have for us and you've had for the church over the centuries. This letter has been ministering to your people in profound ways. And we thank you for how you've done that with us. And Lord, we ask you now to come and visit us as we review this letter that we would uh, be impacted and we would remember how you've impacted us that we might be changed by your word. We might love you more, believe you more, and look more like you in our lifestyles, individually and as a church. For the glory of your worthy name, we pray and thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. We're actually going to read at the end, so I'll be referring to Scripture as I go through. But what I want to do, and I think there's notes that you have uh, that cover these, uh, I think, five key themes. I just want to hit on these five key themes by way of review. First, a key theme... Actually, in a key background idea, I think we have even before the five key themes, uh, is a summary statement. I, I thought, how do I sum up this whole book? Uh, and this is what I would say if I had to put it in a sentence. And all these key, five key themes fit in with this summary statement. It's this, we must live out the reality that the very fullness of Christ is made known in and through your local church church amidst a world in spiritual darkness. That's the truth of, a, of the, this letter to the Ephesians. It's a call. It's a, it's a statement that we must live out the reality that the very fullness of Christ is made known in and through your local church, this local church, King of Grace, amidst a world in spiritual darkness. And these five themes fit in with that. So the first theme is this letter is about Christ's triumph. It's an incredibly rich book with many verses in it jam-packed uh, with, with truth and many favorite verses for many people. Probably one of the most profound sections in the letter is at the beginning in the first 12 verses in chapter 1. And if you have your Bible, you want to be moving along perhaps with me in it. I don't, I'm not going to be projecting as many verses. But chapter 1, verses 3 to 14 are packed with these statements about what Christ has done for us. In the original language, actually, uh, this is one sentence. In your Bible, it's divided up into multiple sentences. In the original language, it's one kind of run-on sentence. And what Paul's doing in that section in the very beginning of this letter is he's just he's, he's going on and on and on about what Christ has done and all the blessings that we have and, and the, the wonder of what He's accomplished for us and His love for us. All that He's done and all that we have in Him. And he's going on and on here, uh, kind of like a, if you've ever, ever heard certain preachers, just eloquent preachers that would, would just unfurl phrase after phrase, phrase praising who Christ is. That's kind of what Paul's doing in this first section in Ephesians. He's just talking about what Christ has done and what it means for us. He's talking about the Gospel, the good news of Christ, that Christ has shed His blood to provide for us perfect forgiveness. All of our trespasses are paid for. He's provided saving grace for our forgiveness. He's Provided in His life, His his death and resurrection, grace for forgiveness simply through faith. We are accepted by God. He's been raised from the dead and He's seated with the Father and He's conquered and is conquering all spiritual forces. And in Him we have victory. He's put His victory on display in and through the church to the heavenly hosts. And this letter celebrates in in those 12 verses, but also throughout the whole the whole letter, what Christ has done over and over again. This is a letter that is thoroughly Gospel-centered, thoroughly Christ-centered from beginning to end. It's about Christ's triumph. And it's about relating that triumph to us. This letter 
speaks to us profoundly about this whole idea of being Christ-centered or we like to say Gospel-centered. We say Gospel-centered versus Christ-centered not to say that they're two distinct things, but to clarify what we mean by Christ-centered. Because there are those who would say, well, we're Christ-centered, our church is Christ-centered, but then you ask them, well, what does that mean? And you start finding out that actually they don't believe in the Gospel, that Christ died for sins and rose again, and it's only through faith in Him that we're forgiven and counted righteous and accepted. They don't believe those things. So they'll, they'll say Christ-centered, but they mean some Christ other than the one defined in the Bible. So that's part of why we say Gospel-centered. We mean the good news about Christ. That's how we know who He is. What He's done. This good news of His perfect righteous life and fulfilling all righteousness. Offering that life up on the cross. Paying for our sins. Rising from the dead. Victorious. That's, that's what we mean. And this letter convinces us, along with the rest of Scripture, that we are called to be a Gospel-centered people. To be a local church, to be a believer, means we must live with the good news at the center because this letter centers on this good news and celebrates this good news and everything springs off of the good news. And so we do not diminish the importance of the Gospel. We don't move on from the Gospel. This letter makes it very clear that the good news of Christ is not the thing that just gets you in and now you go somewhere else. Now you... You know, it's all about evangelism, or it's all it's all about you know holiness, or it's all about missions, or it's all about prayer, or whatever other center you might find. No, it makes it very clear that you start, you continue, and you finish with the good news of Christ at the center. It all flows from there. That's what this letter teaches us. That our church and our existence is not about some goal merely that we accomplish. It's not about moralism. It's not about being better people merely. It's about Jesus. He is the Gospel. The good news is the epicenter of the life of the believer and the life of the church. That's what this letter is about. And it's very clear. Connected to this as well is the theme of the Christian's status. The Christian's status. Who, who we are. And who we are in Christ. In this victory that Christ has won for us. Who we are. Paul prays for the Ephesians in the beginning that they might know all that they have through Christ's triumph. He wants them to know the overcoming hope of their calling. That there's something greater than, than their, their struggles. There's something more glorious that they have in Him to put all their hope in. He wants them to know the riches of their glorious inheritance. That they are rich in Christ. They are blessed with all these spiritual blessings. They are forgiven. They are, they are seated with Christ in heaven. They, we, as believers, are royalty in Christ. He wants us to know. He prays the Ephesians would know this. And He wants them to know the immeasurable power. Not the limited power. Not the portion of power. But the immeasurable power that is theirs. It's the same power that raised Christ from the dead and is with Christ in His reign right now. God's eternal power is our power in Christ. He wants the believers to know this. And, he, and God, through His Word, wants us to know we have a measurable power. All the power we need in Christ. He wants them to know that they're new creations. They're created for good works. They're empowered by God, the Holy Spirit in Christ to live a radically new and different lifestyle. And we see throughout this letter the, these statements that are made over and over again 
about the Christian status in this particular phrase of in Christ or in Him is used throughout this letter. It's actually used 35 times in this letter. In Christ. Over and over again. To emphasize who we are. We, we are in Christ. To be a believer and to be a church is to be in Christ. And in Christ, we have access to all these things. And in Christ, we find our identity. It's the, the core of our identity. And the power for all that we do as believers derives from who we are in Him. 35 times you find it throughout the letter. I, I have just uh, a number, you know, 10 or more examples to show you. If you can put those up, Dan. Um, just real quickly, Ephesians 1.3 says we are blessed in Christ. In Christ with every spiritual blessing in Him. He chose us in Him. In Jesus before the foundation of the world. We are blessed in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption. Verse 7 of chapter 1. Through His blood, the forgiveness of our sins. In Him we have an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works out all things according to the counsel of His will. In Him, when we heard the word of truth, the gospel of salvation, and believed in Him, we're sealed with the Holy Spirit. We have the Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit in us, sealing us for the day of redemption. In Him. He raised us up with Him, or in Him, and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We are raised with Jesus. We are seated with Jesus. We are in Him. We are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. In Christ Jesus, once, the ones who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Through Him, through Christ, Ephesians 2.18, we have access in one Spirit to the Father. In Him we're being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. In Him we have boldness and access uh, through our faith in Him to, to approach God. We are now light in the Lord. All these things. Those are just some of the verses about being in Him. And so this letter is packed with this, this identity for us as a church and us as believers. That's in Him. Guys, there's no better place to ground your identity than in Christ. There's no better place to, to base your self-image and sense of security than in Christ. In what He's done. In the grace and forgiveness you have in Him. You are forgiven no matter how much you've messed up. You are forgiven in Christ by His blood shed for you. His righteous life offered for you. You are forgiven. You are empowered by grace to be a new creation and live a new life. All in Him. You are treated and counted as royalty in Him. In Him you have everything. There's no better place. There's no higher status. There's no safer identity than your identity in Christ. And this letter just repeats that truth over and over again throughout the whole letter. And it says some really profound things with that that, are, that should cause us to stop and just ponder and scratch our heads and wonder. Because in Christ is the fullness of God. Christ is God. And in Him all the fullness of God dwells. And it says that we've been given fullness in Christ. That all the fullness of God uh, fills us in Christ. We are, we are given fullness in Him. What we have in Christ represents the fullness of God who, who fills the whole universe with His glory. And he, he prays in chapter 3 for the Ephesians that, that they would be filled with all the fullness of God. Ephesians 
Now, wait a second. It, it says it, right? That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And he's speaking to the church. Uh, and, and individuals too, but the, the church as a whole. How, how full is the fullness of God? How great is the glory of God? How great is it? It's, it's greater than we can imagine, right? The universe itself, all of creation, all the, the incredible things in creation are just expressions of His glory. It's not the fullness of. Creation itself can't contain the fullness of God. The glory of God is beyond creation. God is infinite in His glory. Now, He expresses His glory. And His glory is expressed actually infinitely in Christ. What Christ did. The, the amazing, mind-blowing truth that He bore our sins. God eternally holy, glorious, took on our sins. Humanity's sins. Our sins. Our rebellion against Him. Our choices which are entirely foreign to Him in His perfect holiness and goodness. He took those on Himself and, and died in our place. He exchanged His glory. He gave up His glory. exchanged His righteousness for our unrighteousness. Paid for our sins and, and made us in Him that we might be counted righteous. That's, that's, that's infinitely glorious truth. Because He goes from infinitely high in His holiness to infinitely low in bearing our sins. And that's part of His expression of glory in the Gospel. But in and through that Gospel, when we believe, and that's all we're called to do as, believe, as people, all humanity is called to turn away from believing and putting your trust elsewhere, to put your trust in Christ alone, to believe, and, and repentance goes with true belief because there's no way for you to turn and believe without turning away from something else. And through faith in Him, we have access to Him and that forgiveness. And it says that the intention here is that we might be filled with all the fullness of God. That all the glory of God that goes beyond the universe, all the glory of God that is expressed in, in the Gospel and in Christ might fill us as a church. Might fill us. Infinite, infinite glory fitting in little tiny churches and human beings blows your mind if you start to think about it. But it says it right here. It's true. We're limited beings, right? We can only take so much of a good thing, right? How many filet mignons can you eat? Seven? <laughs> I've never had more than one. My first experience with the filet mignon, by the way, I, I didn't know what they were. And it was like this really expensive piece of Steak, so I figured it was going to be huge, and it came out. It was a hockey puck, and I was like, "Hey, it was a ripoff." Uh, but how many filet mignons could you eat? I don't know. I'm not recommending you eat a whole lot of filet mignons, but you know, seven maybe. I don't know, big guy, maybe ten or something like that. You can only fit so much in you, right? And then you get sick. Imagine if I said, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to take all, all the power of the sun, all the solar energy that's there in the sun, and it's it's incredible uh, how much energy there is in the sun. Uh, it, on a sunny day, a square meter of sunshine can power a hair dryer. I mean, that's how much is just hitting that one spot. So, and that's coming from 98 million miles away. I mean, imagine if I said uh, all the power of the sun is going to be put inside of you. Yeah, right. That's so ridiculous. This says all the fullness of God is to fill you. And Paul prays that you, we would be filled with all the fullness of God. Infinite glory meant to dwell in limited, weak, unworthy ultimately.
people and churches. That's our status. That's who we are. And that's God's plan to put His infinite glory on display in and through us to to the cosmos, to the, the heavenly hosts for all eternity. And it starts now. This isn't like you know later on. This will happen later on. He doesn't say that here in this letter, does He? He doesn't say, well, this is only for when Christ comes back and you get rid of your sinful body and all that. No. Now. He prays that they would know it now. And that's what we're called to. This amazing status in Christ that all the fullness of God is to dwell in us as a local church and as believers. And it's to be put on display. And it's in the midst of a dark world, right? That's how we finish this letter. We realize that, that there's spiritual warfare going on. That, that all this glory, this infinite glory is put on display in a people who are weak and limited and living in a dark world that surrounds us. But that's God's plan. That's who we are. And this particular thing we talked about with, with bathroom, the bathroom law and stuff, God knows that was going to happen. And His desire is to put His glory on display in us and how we relate to that and how we walk through it. Graciously, kindly, but truthfully. He wants to show infinite glory because of who we are in Christ. Another theme is the church's importance. You can't read through this letter, you can't go through this letter without being changed in your view of the local church. You can't go through it without, I think, if you get it, having a strong and unshakable commitment to the local church. This is written to a church, actually a citywide church that was comprised of many local congregations. It's for them specifically. This isn't just written for capital C church, just the, the whole church throughout history and stuff. It is, it certainly applies to that, but it's written to a specific local church. So we need to understand that the things in this letter are meant for us here, King of Grace Church, as well as every other local church. And this letter says some uh, amazing, profound things about the local church. Again, just real quickly moving through. Ephesians chapter 1 says that the church is His body. Chapter 1.23 It says it's the household of God. It's a holy temple in the Lord. 1.19-21 Verse 22 says it's a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Chapter 2.13-14 says He's made us both one. He's broken down in the flesh the dividing wall of hostility. So it's a unified. He takes diverse people and unifies them together. The church in chapter 3, verse 10 is to, to make the manifold wisdom of God known to the rules and authorities in the heavenly places. The church is this, this thing that's to put on display the wisdom and glory of God. And then chapter 3.21, he says, to Him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus. The church and Jesus are put on par in this letter. Now, we're not saying the church is the same as God the Son, but, but they are put on par in their function and importance. Chapter 4 says we are to grow to mature manhood to the measure and stature of the fullness of Christ. The church is to grow to be the measure and stature of the fullness of Christ. All, again, all the glory of Christ, all the holiness of Christ, the truth of Christ is to, to saturate who we are. And there's to be a, a parody in a sense of we look like Jesus. The church is His body. It's His bride. Chapter 5, we learn about these things. These statements about the church are, are profound. And they should change our way that we look at our local church, whether you're here or somewhere else. You cannot say you belong to Jesus and not belong to a local church. That's what this is getting at. 
It doesn't make any sense. You cannot say you love Jesus and not love a local church. Because it's His bride. They go together. Christ and His church. If you went over someone's house, uh, another couple, to hang out with them, and you spent your time there at, with that couple having dinner, and all your conversation was with the, the husband, and all your attention was on the husband, and you never said anything to the wife, would, that would be inappropriate. And it's certainly if you also, when asked, well, why aren't you talking to the wife? It's like, well, I really like you, but she's kind of boring. You know, and sometimes she's really annoying, actually. I don't like what she said and things she's done. So I'm not, you know, it's okay if she's here, but I, it's me, me and you. This is what this time's about. He, he would be like, any good husband would be like, there's the door, buddy. Don't let it hit you on the way out. The church is Jesus' bride, beloved bride. As imperfect as she may be at times, she's beloved. You are beloved as His church. This local church. We need this truth. We need this truth because I think in American culture there are forces that are defining the church even amidst those that love the Word of God and love the Gospel. There are forces that are defining the church as something slightly different in ways that I think are very destructive and counter to Ephesians. This letter helps us understand the nature and purpose of the local church. And, and the church here described is not a nonprofit organization with a religious bent. It's not a conglomeration of people with particular preferences. It's not even a community organization trying to make an impact on Ephesus. It's not an organization that services the spiritual and relational needs of, Ephesians, of Ephesian Christians. The church is nothing like a business or even a nonprofit business. It is a more like a family. It's like a husband and wife. It's like a family. It's a temple. It's a place where God dwells. And the temple is organized around the dwelling of God. That's what the church is. It's not these other things. And so we need, to, we need to understand that. There may be elements that are similar, but it's so different. And to be His church is to be something so different. And, and the American church, I, and, and myself, I've been realizing this more and more, I take things from the business world and the nonprofit world and I import it into the church. And it only causes trouble for the most part. There's lessons to learn. Don't get me wrong. There's leadership that's called the church is called to. And there's organization as well. There's things we can learn. But when that starts to kind of shift the identity of the church into something else, we get off it, We get off, and we miss what God's purposes are for the church. It's more like a family. We have to understand that. It doesn't work otherwise. Scripture calls us to these truths. Those, those truths there are, are relational metaphors about the church. There's nothing in these things. Body, family, bride. That's like a nonprofit. It's like a family. It's relationally intensive. And it's, it's, a, it's a relationship that's already formed. We intuitively understand those metaphors because we live in them. So we should be thinking of the church as a family. Yeah, we should seek to do things as well as we can. We should have an impact in the community, but that's secondary, not primary. Primary is who we are. We're the family of God. And we don't, we don't bring to our family nonprofit or business thinking, do we? Could you imagine? Honey, uh, 
you know, you, your meals are kind of like, uh, on the latest review I gave you, your meals were more like a two stars out of five, and this has been going on for a while. And actually, I, 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 um, I'm aware that the Joneses, uh, they're consistently rated at five stars on their dinner meals. So I'm, if you don't mind for dinner, I'm going to be going over to the Joneses from now on. That's, that just makes sense, you know? So you got to work on your reviews. Or, or Dad, um, those family devotions, one star maybe? Um, you know, and, and Mr. Smith around the corner, I mean, excellent. He's got like props and stuff, and he's got like, you know, they watch a video sometimes, and he's just like, he's incredible. And so next family devotional, I'm going there. Well, Mom and Dad... Um, you know, the, 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 uh, getting that F in school was a really hard struggle for me, and I don't feel like you really gave me enough time and cared for me enough. And I was with Julie's parents, and they asked me all these questions. They were really there for me. So do you mind if I just go to Julie's family and be part of them because those parents are more caring than here? It's shocking, right? We don't do those things. We understand. This is my family. And... And it doesn't mean that we don't care about the meals and we don't care about the devotions and we don't care about caring for our kids, but we don't go anywhere else because this is our family. God's called us here. And the church is more like that than a business. And that thinking impacts us. It impacts us all. It impacts me. There's a reality that at times I, I think I'm the, in charge of this nonprofit and I've got to make sure that all the devotions are good and all the meals are good and all the care is always good and it's just impossible because we're just people. And yeah, the Word of God, the Spirit of God's here and He's making us like this and we're committed to that. But our identity and our function has to be grounded somewhere else than our product. That's what Ephesians teaches us. It shifts our understanding of, of the church and guides us in a way that we really need help. I'm going to have to move a lot faster. I have to decide. I wanted to read it with us. I might not be able to do that because I'm covering these themes. I trust this is profitable. Um, let me say this. Uh, if you can read this letter, you can read it probably in one setting in probably 25 minutes actually. Um, but if you, you could do that today, later on, I just encourage you to do that to get the most out of our time. I wanted to read it. I'm realizing 11.15, I'm not going to be able to read it with you. Uh, but I'm hoping to, s- to help you as you go home and read this today to benefit from this letter. So, a couple more themes. Christ-like living. Uh, this, this letter talks about Christ-like living and it connects all these things. We could look at all this stuff about Christ's victory and our status and even the church being a family and just think, you know, well, we don't have to do anything. Let's just live in this. Let's just, you know, live in the status and, and just be a family that chills together. Right? We're just going to love on each other and live in grace and it's all going to be good. And Ephesians says, well, you got that half right. Actually, when you love on each other and you chill in grace and you live in these things, it must and it will produce people that are eager to look like Christ, who are eager to be different, who are eager to love God with their whole hearts, are eager to love one another, are eager to, eager to love their community. And so this letter is jam-packed with commands. There are over 80 commands in this sixth chapter letter. Over 80 commands calling us to live a certain way, all grounded in the victory of Christ, all grounded in our identity, all in the context of this local church that is a family, but real actions 
real behavior, real holiness. And so, you can go through the letter, and it just, particularly the latter half of the letter, calls us to obedience in so many different ways. Uh, I'm going to go through this really quick. We're to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. We're to bear with one another in love. We're to, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. We're to no longer walk as the Gentiles do. We're to put off the old self. We're to be renewed in the spirit of our minds. We're to put on the new self. We're to put away falsehood. We're to speak truth. We're to be angry and not sin. We're not to, to be angry and not let the sun go down on our anger. We're to give no opportunity to the devil. We're to lot, uh, the thief is to no longer steal. He's to labor. He's to do honest work. He's to share. No one corrupting talk should come out of our mouths. We're only to speak what is good for building up. And we're only to speak what fits the occasion. We're only to speak to give grace to those who hear. We're not to grieve the Holy Spirit. We're to let all bitterness be put away. All wrath put away. All anger put away. All clamor put away. All slander put away. Along with malice. We're to be kind to one another. We're to be tenderhearted. We're to forgive one another. We're to be imitators of God. We're to walk in love. We're to put away sexual immorality. We're to put away impurity. We're to put away covetousness. They shouldn't even be named among us. There shouldn't be filthiness. There shouldn't be foolish talk. There shouldn't be crude joking. There should instead be thanksgiving. You are not to be deceived with empty words. You're not to become partners with people. You're to walk as children of light. You're to try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. You're to take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness. You're, you're to expose them. You're to look carefully how you walk. You're to walk not as unwise, but as wise. You're to make the best use of the time. You're not to be foolish. You're to understand what the will of the Lord is. You're not to be drunk with wine. You're to be filled with the Spirit. You are to address one another in psalms. You're to address one another in hymns and spiritual songs. You're to sing. You're to make melody to the Lord with your heart. You're to give thanks always uh, to the Lord. You are to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, you're to submit to your husbands. Husbands, you're to love your wives as Christ loved the church. Children, you're to obey your parents. You're to honor your father and mother. Fathers, you're not to provoke your children to anger. You're instead to bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. You're to, uh, to obey your earthly masters. You're to do so with fear and trembling. You're to do so with a sincere heart. You're to do so as you would Christ. You're to do so not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ. You're to do the will of God from your heart. You're to render service with a good will as to the Lord, not man. Masters, do the same to them. Stop your threatening. Masters stop, or bosses, stop your threatening. Be strong in the Lord. Be strong in the strength of His might. You're to put on the whole armor of God. You're to stand firm. You're to stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth. You're to stand, therefore, having put on the breastplate of righteousness. You're to stand, having fitted your shoes with the uh, gospel of peace. In all circumstances, you're to take up the shield. You're to take the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit. You're to pray at all times with prayer and supplication. You're to keep alert. You're to make supplication for all the saints. And to pray also for Paul or, or missionaries. Those are some of the commands, most of the commands in Ephesians. That's a lot. This letter cares about Christ-like living. And it understands God's truth is such that the good news of the Gospel and the context of the church produces holiness. And we are called to this new life. And we need to hear this because we as a church are committed to the wonder of grace. We're committed to the centrality of the Gospel. And in our humanity, in our weakness and the way we tend to think is sometimes we just don't get things. And we may think that we can, because we love grace and we're camping out in the Gospel that Christ has died, we're totally forgiven, then let's not worry about what we do. And this letter helps us. It, it reminds us, no, they go together. And we must be eager to pursue holiness, to, to strive together to, to help one another in these things. 
I hope as a result of going through this series, you love holiness more. I hope that you not only love it more because, because it means being like Jesus, it means walking out the impact of the Gospel in your life, but I hope also you understand in that how to do it. So that you're not living in this place like, yeah, you know, thanks for 80 commands. I feel guilty right now. That's all you're doing here. I hope going through this letter has helped you understand that it's not, it's not about that. It's about correction. It's about the call to something that's greater and more beautiful and glorious. This new life that we're called to is glorious and good. And I, we have together what we need. We have the Word. We have the Spirit. We have relationships. We have this new life in us. We have power. We have forgiveness. We don't need to live in guilt. We don't need to be bogged down, dragging along a load of guilt. That we're free. But we're free in Christ and in the love of God. He's filling this, us with all the fullness. That love that's infinite is filling our hearts and empowering us to turn back and love Him. And love others that are not necessarily easy to love. So I hope you understand how it works. That you love holiness and you know what it looks like and how to grow in that. Final theme. Conquering for Christ. We spent a lot of time in chapter 6. We spent a lot of time because Chapter 6, verses 10-20 through 20 really are a bookend. The other bookend is at the beginning of the letter. And they're actually very similar. The front part of the letter, those, those 12 verses uh, that are run-on sentence in the original language, that's a celebration of the victory of Christ and all that it means for us. That's one end. That's one end of the bookshelf. The other end of the bookshelf is connected. It's a walking out of the victory that we have in Christ. They're meant to be connected. I believe. And so we took time to slow down and think about that this victorious Christ has established everything we need in Him and has established victory, but we are to walk out this victory in a darkened world. Which means real battles. Real struggles. It means walking together. It means putting the armor on. It means doing battle together. It means praying at all times. Together. Locking shields together. Walking. But we walk out that victory in the context of real battle. The victory is ours, but we're to walk it out. It isn't hypothetical and theoretical. It's real, right? And we took time to go through that and, and think through, wow, it is real. Boy, I face it every day. There's a way to live in light of the truth of Ephesians in the light of spiritual battle. And so a theme here is the conquering Christ. He is conquering. And He's interested in conquering territory. He's conquered territory in our own hearts and He wants to expand that territory. He wants to use us to use the sword and to thrust and to conquer and gain territory and hold it together. The analogy is made with the Roman soldier and the Romans were known for conquering vast expanses of land in the name of Caesar. And Christ is conquering vast expanses of souls. And we are part of that and part of that battle. And so we stand our ground. We hold this ground here in Greater Haverhill together alongside our other brothers and sisters in other churches, but in particular, alongside each other. We hold this ground together in the victory of Christ. And we walk out this victory together. And we advance it together. That's important to get. This is an ongoing thing as well. If the band could come up as we close.
These are major themes in this letter. Christ's triumph, the Christian status, the church's importance, Christ-like living, and our conquering Christ. What I want to do is, just in closing, before we sing, to take a minute now just to reflect on those things and to think, is there one thing that really stood out for me in this series? What is that one thing? What's the way that I've been changed? And Just note that. And it might just be, I've been encouraged this way. It might be, you know what, I found myself taking prayer more seriously. Or I found that I'm, I'm doing more confession and prayer and help with others when I struggle because I realize we need to lock shields together. Whatever it might be. Just to note that. Then as I said, if you could later today, just take time to read through the letter. I think God would add even more as you do that. Um, and he would leave us with a, a lasting impact as a result of this letter. Let me pray and then take time, take a minute or two to do that and then we'll close in song. Lord, we thank You 